Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Numbers 22 is where we're picking up tonight. Chapter 21, I just got to be in Red Wing this morning and I got to reteach chapter 21, so it's really fresh for me. Um, but for the rest of you, the people complain against uh, Moses and God, so that for the first time Israel complains against God instead of blaming people. Uh, and then God disciplines them with some fiery snakes and he gives them this beautiful image of a pole with a serpent impaled upon it and says, look to the pole and you'll be saved and gives us this kind of image of Christ. Only that salvation didn't last. All those Israelites still died. Uh, the image of Christ is an eternal image that we can look to and be saved. Um, then we come to Numbers 22, and it's really interesting because the Amorites in chapter 21 kind of lost uh, to Israel, and they lost this territory, which is today Lebanon, which is still outside of what we call Israel today, but it's part of this area, and some of the tribes of Israel actually settle in the area they just took in the last chapter. Um, and then we get this really weird kind of segue. It's like the, the movie stops and we transition over to the other team. And it says the children of Israel moved in verse one and camped in the plains of Moab and the sides of the Jordan across from Jericho. And that's all we get for a transition sentence. And then we're going to go into, uh, the camp of the enemy, so to speak. So, and we left in chapter 21 with the children of Israel finally following the Lord. They're looking to his symbol of salvation and they're traveling all around, taking territory. Everything's going great for Israel. Meanwhile, off to the side, there's these other two characters, Balak and Balaam. Balaam? Ba Balaam? Balaam. We're just going to say Balaam tonight. Uh, and you have these other two characters. So um, we have Israel being left in a good place, not only a good place, physically in the geography that they're in, but a good place spiritually. They're following the Lord and the people are looking to the Lord for their salvation. And then we come across the street and we see this image. So verse two, now Balak, and in the Hebrew, that word means devastator or someone who's lays waste to things. So you don't get a name like Balak unless you're pretty good at, at destroying things um, and being a king that, that, that is a, a king of conquest. He's the son of Zippor and saw that all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab, which is the name of the country, was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So the devastator is afraid of being devastated, which there's some irony there, yes. In Exodus 15, verse 14, this is also fulfills a prophecy because back in Exodus, the song of Moses, if you remember it, it said the people will hear and be afraid. Moab is named. And it says, Moab will be afraid. So when we read verse 2 and 3, 3 is actually a complete fulfillment of that prophecy that they sung when they were leaving Egypt. That there's going to be nations that are afraid of Israel um, because God's with them. So we have this world that is kind of starting to see Israel. 
And one thing to note is we've been through a lot of chapters and numbers. We're all the way to chapter 22. The world wasn't afraid of the nation of complainers. Remember the whiny people that complained about the manna? The world wasn't scared of them. The world was terrified of these people that follow the Lord with complete fidelity. That's when suddenly we see these other nations being scared of Israel. is because Israel's there. They're completely afraid to look up to the Lord earlier and... They have manas and springs of living water. Remember, rise up, oh, oh well. Um, and they have these songs that they're singing. They're praying and God answers their prayers. This is kind of an unstoppable force at this time, but a weird unstoppable force. It's not mighty chariots and a military. That's not what makes them mighty. What makes them mighty is that they march around singing songs. So this is a unique, truly unique nation. And it makes these other people quake in fear, but there's no reason for them to fear. Because if they would have just asked Israel, God did not promise this land to the Israelites. So this nation that we're talking about in verse chapter 22 is not actually territory that God promised to the Israelites. They had no reason to fear them. They would have just walked right by them if they would have just asked. So fear is then based on what they're seeing. It's not based on the truth. So if you want to look that up and get into that as a deeper Bible study, Deuteronomy chapter 2 kind of describes the land that they were promised. And this is simply just not in that list. So Zippor is the uh, male version of the word Zipporah. Interestingly, that was also the name of Moses' wife, who was a Moabitess. Um, and Moab would have ruled, or she was a Midianite, and Moab would have ruled that territory of Midian. So they also, if they would have bothered to have Moses over for dinner, would have realized that his wife was from their nationality. So they would have realized, oh my goodness, maybe we can be allies with this country. So... What we do know about this part of the world is they would have worshipped multiple gods. So the priests of Moab had no issue taking Egyptian gods into their worship thing. They would have, the, the, the high priest people in Moab would have studied religions from all over the region, right? And you need to know that because we, we get into Balaam and he actually prays to Yahweh. And you'd think, what's going on here? But that would have been typical of a priest of Moab. And they would, if they're dealing with Israel, they're going to pray to the God of Israel and try to make a deal. So that's what happens. So Moab and the elders of Midian, now this com so Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company, com company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass in the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. So Balak and Balaam are going to have this outside story. Two thoughts before we get into it too far. One is, I think it's kind of cool that God is working in other countries, not just in Israel. Like it's a really interesting viewpoint that God's going to do something and do a miracle here and it has nothing to do with Israel. And I, I think it's a blessing that God even inspired that to be part of the word. Um, it's interesting also that there's going to be those people outside of Israel that, are, that know of Yahweh because they would have been understanding Yahweh from way back in Genesis. So as opposed to evolutions evolving into different kinds of evolutions, it doesn't seem to be that way. It seems to be there's a distant memory of Yahweh. Humans just keep adding new gods into their life. And that seems to be the trajectory of history that the Bible presents. So just those two thoughts. Um, and then the third one is, remember, the goal of God is to get all people on the planet back into a proper and a right worship of him. So God's not just interested in Israel. He's going to use Israel to create these images of Christ, but he's actually interested in people from all over the world and bringing them back into the fold. Then he sent messengers, verse 5, to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor. Balaam means 
<laughs> not of the people, which is appropriate. He's not an Israelite. He's not of the people. Uh, it might be that Balaam is the name that Moses gave to this priest character um, to explain to the Israelites because Balaam then means something in the Hebrew. Uh, Beor means the burning or consumer, and Pethor means to interpret dreams or a soothsayer. So this would have been a Mesopotamian town, perhaps in the area of Syria, which would have been 370 miles from Lebanon. So for context, geographically, Balak is probably a month's journey away from Balaam. So when they talked to each other, there would have been this trip that would have had to happen. But it says that the reputation of Israel has really spread around the region, and they're all talking to each other. So not of the people, son of burning, is at a soothsayer or a place of interpreting dreams, maybe a holy city of sorts for the, for the Moabites or this area of the world, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him saying, look, a people has come from Egypt. So the, the, the miracles of Egypt would have been known then around the world, which adds a lot of, uh, makes it really kind of an interesting thing. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. So there would have been this impressive military style organized camp marching right up to your border and making camp. And that's in every worldly sense, it's kind of rational to think Israel might be trouble for your country because here's this mass of people right on your border. Verse six, therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I should be, I should be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Which is, by the way, kind of ripping off Genesis. That's an attribute that's given to God back in Genesis. Those who I curse will be cursed. Those who I bless will be blessed. So apparently that language maybe even came from that period of history. And Balaam's kind of said that about himself and made himself into kind of this holy guy with a reputation. So there's power with this Balaam. He's known by nations around him. He's the best the world has to offer at this period of history. And take note that Balak rightly recognizes this as a spiritual battle. It's not just a physical battle. He's not gathering his generals. He's gathering spiritual forces to fight for him. Kind of interesting, right? And he recognizes what's coming as a spiritual battle. So Balaam has a reputation. We don't know to what degree he serves Yahweh, but we do know that the world appreciates him and likes him. Nowhere in the Bible is Balaam called a prophet. So he acts like a prophet. He gets treated like a prophet. He does things that look prophet-like, but he's not a prophet. The Bible never names him as one. So I think that's one of those things where a careful reading of the Bible gives you some insights. And I'm saying all this because it looks like for the first part of this chapter that this guy's kind of acting as though he's a, a priest, right? And he's putting on a show or he's pretending to be something, a false prophet at best. And he's moving around. So we see that. Oh, by the way, the, the spot where God says that uh, I'll bless who I bless and I'll curse who I curse is back in Genesis 12 at the beginning of the chapter. So if you want to look at that and see where that shows up. So in this case, when we see Balaam and people going to Balaam, it's all about Balaam. It's not about Yahweh. And that's another important thing for us to discern who a false prophet is and who a true prophet is. Because with a false prophet, it's all about them. Look at me, look at me. The true prophet, it's all about God. Look at God and look at God's word. Balaam actually takes God, God's word and ascribes it to himself. And that's kind of one of those first cues. So Balaam's elevated. Verse 7. 
So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee. Way number two that you know that it's a false prophet is that it's all about the money. Bring the diviner's fee, which would have been a handsome sum if you're trying to get a nation to be cursed. There's got to be a nice fee that goes with that. So if you ever, any of you want to get into the business of cursing nations, that can be a lucrative way to make some money. So there's a diviner's fee in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Way number three, you recognize the false prophet, is they host the people that are in sin and actively trying to do ill to God's people. He put, brings them into his house and says, have a place to sleep. So you've kind of got this pride and you've got this greed that are already displayed in, the, in between the lines there. So this is a money-making deal, and Balaam is clearly a compromised kind of priest at best. Uh, he's a false prophet at worst, um, and he is someone who can, who can provide a false peace for Balak, right? And he can kind of come in and do that. So this is a business deal. And the Lord speaks to me is one of the phrases, uh, that word Lord there. Balak uses the term Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, right? So when you see Lord in all capitals, Balak's actually using Yahweh there. Um, and so the princes of Moab stayed with him. As the Lord speaks to me, you wonder at some degree, back in Genesis 14, we saw Melchizedek, who was a priest outside the family of Abraham that Abraham kind of honored and Seemingly, in, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek was a priest of Yahweh. So we know there's still priests of Yahweh all around the world at this time. It's not just in Israel that they exist. Um, God has his people all over. In this case, Balaam's kind of, we'll see, is kind of a compromised personality. So he's well acquainted with the Israelites. Balaam, if he did his job well, would have known everything about Jehovah. He would have known everything that they were learning in Israel. He had had people finding out about it because his job was to know everything about every god on the planet. So he would have been well-educated. So he's using the term Yahweh because he's dealing with Israel. In verse 9, it says, Then God, which is an interesting shift, because we go from Balaam using Jehovah or Yahweh, and then we see that God uses the word Elohim, <laughs> which is a different kind of relationship. And we've seen that before, too. There's different names for God. So Balak's like, I'll talk to my buddy Jehovah, and God's like, God the Father will deal with Balaam. And there's a different kind of contrast there, so pay attention to those words. And God, Elohim, says to Balaam, who are these men to you? God knows who the men are, and we've seen God do this a lot. When God asks you a question, before you answer that question, think, is God trying to convict me right now? Because is, is he pointing right at it? You know, and, and, and we, you know, we see that a lot. Adam, where is, you know, where is your wife? Um, and we, we see God asking those questions often. Where is your brother? Right? And God knows what's going on. He knows what it is. But God goes right to the issue that Balaam has these men that are seeking to do evil to Israel staying in his house. And that's right away God goes right to that thing. So apparently there's an existing relationship. Balaam expects God to talk back to him. So I think that's kind of interesting. Like Balaam's praying to Yahweh thinking that he'll respond. Elohim responds. And God's the first to point out who's Balaam's entertaining, that there's sin in Balaam's life that, that's there. God wants Balaam to answer because he wants an account from his own lips. And I think this is sometimes why God asks people questions. Because then we are saying with our own lips what the sin is in our life. And that's a form of, that's the first step in repentance. 
So he's asking that of him. Verse 10. So Balaam says to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look at a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me, that perhaps I shall be able to empower them or drive them out. Notice that Balaam leaves out the plagiarism of Genesis. Like, he doesn't tell God, who I bless will be blessed, and who I curse will be cursed. He loves it when people say that about him, but he doesn't actually repeat that back to God because he knows better. So God brings the concerns of the world, to, or Balaam brings the concerns of the world to God and never answers the question, who are these people in your house? So he never really owns up to it. He knows the history, he knows the Hebrews, he knows the traditions, and he's well acquainted with all of this. Uh, and it says to curse them for me. I think it's interesting that Balaam can't even hide that because it says, come now, curse them for me. It's like Balaam's in control of the situation. And I believe there are people that, are holy that really think they have all the power when it comes to that. But every other person of God that we've seen recognizes God does the cursing, God does the blessing. It's not for humans to do that. But Balaam can't even frame it that way. Verse 12, God says to Balaam, you shall not go with them and you shall not curse the people for they are blessed. And, and, and they are blessed being a, um, an interesting thing. God inquire, Balaam inquires about this and he gets an absolutely clear answer. This is important for the rest of the story. We often go to God and we ask for answers on things, and God often gives us a crystal clear answer in his word. Don't do this and do do this. And that's exactly what Balaam gets. You're not supposed to travel with them. You're not supposed to curse them. And just remember how clear that answer was that he got from, from right? The word of God comes right to him and gives him an, a very discreet, simple answer. So Balaam rose in the morning, and he said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord, again he uses Jehovah there, has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Do you see the blame game getting done there? How clear that is? First of all, he throws the Lord under the bus. The Lord's refused to give me permission to go with you. That's partially true. The Lord says don't go with them. He doesn't bother to mention that he's not supposed to curse them. He just leaves that part out. So he doesn't say the complete word of God to those folks. And then the people instantly translate that not into God has prevented Balaam, but they say Balaam's refused to come with us and Balaam doesn't appear to correct them at all, right? So Balaam's happy to throw God under the bust and the can't go part isn't combined with the can't curse part. If he would have included the can't curse part, this would have been the end of the story, right? But he just says, I can't go with you. Well, that's almost like a business negotiation. Well, I just can't do business at that level. And what's going to happen is they're going to read that as a negotiation. So Lord's refused to give me permission. It's like saying, I can't go out and play with you guys right now because mom and dad won't let me. But maybe if you come back later, they'll let me come out and play, right? Do you hear the tone? All right. I do. Um, then Balak again sends prince. Balak again sent princes. Remember, this is going to be a one-month trip. So months are passing by here. Israel's not attacking, and months are passing by. So instead of the fear getting less and less and less, the fear gets to be more and more and more, because that's, I think, sometimes how things work. The more numerous and honorable, or Bilaam sent, again, princes more numerous and honorable than they. So he sends people that are higher ranking, you know, closer to the throne of these various cities and kingdoms. Um, the appeal here is pride and greed, because more honorable is code for more money. So he's going to up the offer. I'm going to give you more pride and more wealth 
uh, in this situation. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. If certainly I will honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come and curse this people for me. So we get a second request. The offer is upped. This is kind of a blank check written by a powerful king. That's a nice place to be if you're a diviner and a soothsayer. But the problem in this is please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. Balak has no respect for the God, the creator God of the universe. In fact, the word that's used there is nothing. And God isn't nothing. So even if he took Balaam at his word where he says, God won't let me come to you, and he turns that around and says, don't let nothing should stop you from coming to me. And he's equating God to being irrelevant or nothing. Balaam should have shut this relationship down. If you really believed and trusted in the Lord, he's already gotten his clear answer. He should have just shut this down, but he doesn't. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I might know what more the Lord will say to me. Does he need to know what more the Lord will say to him? Was the instruction unclear the first time? So the first time I read through this, I get to chapter 19 and I go to stuff and I'm, and I'm just saying, you know, I don't get it. This guy kind of sounds like he might be on the up and up. Don't you? I mean, honestly, isn't that kind of a cool thing to say? And that's kind of one of the tricks with false prophets is that they can sound really good, right? Or they, they feel, feel, fear more, feel more fair and look more foul or the opposite. Sorry, that's another Lord of the Rings reference. He feels kind of fair, but there's something foul going on here. And there's something wrong with this whole picture and what's going on. Um, he should have shut it down. And he says, it, it's not about the money. It's really not about the money. It's about following the Lord. But why don't you stay here tonight and stay with me? And again, he hosts them and is hospitable to them. And I'm thinking, well, that's not so bad. He's just hosting people that just had a one-month journey. This is kind of nice. And he's saying, I'm only, only going to do what the Lord lets me do. Right? But at the same time, he's not listening to what the word, Lord, word of God came to him the first time. And it's really generous of God to even speak to this guy. So God does respond to him, gives him the right answer. And it's, it, there's this kind of toying with things that Balaam does. It sounds good. I won't go beyond the word of the Lord. And we can take him at his word. Maybe, maybe he's a holy guy. Maybe he really is seeking the will of God. But then you've got to remind yourself, but he's already heard the will of God and he's playing with it. Right? Option two, then, is this is all a giant scam. And he's really trying to get as much money out of this situation as he can. The bigger the threat, the more money he can get. And if he's a professional soothsayer, he's going to play that game. The more you can make people fearful of things, the more money you can get from them. And uh, then I started to think, yeah, this is what my buddy Sam had concerns about, you know, his church back in Nigeria. He had real concerns about some of those pastors because they seemed to be getting richer and richer while his friends and neighbors were getting poorer and poorer. The deeper the concern that people have, the more gullible they can be to false soothsayers that want to take more and more money from them. And it's just one of those situations. So Balaam's playing this game. He's playing it shrewdly. He invites them to stay over. You know, it's always nice to have princes and kings staying in your house. Um, I don't know that if his purpose in having them stay over was to win them over to God because we don't see any evangelism, no ministry. There's nothing there. I don't think it's to avoid conflict. He's just using them and trying to up his ante. It's one way to read it. 
And this is a good place for discussion too. Is he on the up and up or not? Um, verse 20. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call to you, rise and go with them. But the only word which only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. So again, oh, it seems like the Lord's talking to this guy. And didn't the Lord tell him not to go with him? And now the Lord's telling him to go with him? And you start to get an insight on how God works with people. When our heart is so set on doing something, the, this God, this all-powerful God, does not get in our way. He actually lets us continue to go down the wrong path. So seeing that Balaam is kind of set on this course, most commentators I was looking at are kind of like, God's just relenting. Okay, if you have to go with them, fine. But only say the words I'm going to tell you to say. And that's all I want you to say. So he still gives Balaam this license, which I just think is amazing. Um, if the men come is a conditional statement in verse 20. Pay attention to that. Notice in verse 21, the men never come to Balaam. So God even says, if they come, then go. Balaam's so excited to go. He hears that you can go part, and he totally ignores the conditional part. So the men don't come to him. There's no evidence that Balaam rises in the morning. He gets up bright and early because he's going to go with him. He wants to close this deal and go do this. But only the word. Balaam said to say only the word. So God relents on half of it. He sticks to the word of God part. Balaam gets up. He desires to do it. He's greedily running after this thing, rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Very detailed progression of three things. The men coming to him to ask him to come is not one of those things. So Balaam's, again, defying God and disobeying him. But it doesn't feel that bad, right? Like at some level, I hope, there's a part of you going, Dickers, you're being really hard on Balaam here. This isn't that big of a deal. But these are the kinds of things, and I think this is a really interesting narrative right after we did all that stuff with Israel. These are the kinds of things that people that are compromised do. And we're getting this image of a compromised person who does believe in Yahweh and even prays to Yahweh. And God actually speaks to Balaam in a really powerful and clear voice in a clear way, which is greater than most of us can say, right? You know, I don't know if I, I haven't had the speakers turned on and have God make complete sentences like that. We see God move in a lot of other ways in our life, but Balaam's actually hearing back from God and he's still compromised because what's in his heart is greed. It's one thing to think something. It's another thing to show through your actions what's in your heart. And this is a great discussion we had just earlier this week. There is a difference between what we do and what we believe and who we are. And those things have to be in concert and they're not with Balaam. In, in words, it seems like a nice interaction with God, but indeed, he's ignoring God, he's dis disregarding the word of God, and doing whatever he wants to do anyways. Let's see how this goes. Interestingly, this man, if you, if you agree with that picture that he's kind of greedy and prideful, uh, we should know that there's some woes for that. Woe unto them, for they've gone the way of Cain, and they've run greedily after the error of Balaam from reward. That's Jude chapter 1, verse 11. The rest of the Bible tells us how to read this story. And we should know that Balaam is greedy and he runs after reward. And it comes right in this verse we just read, right? So here's this prideful, greedy person who's going to get taught some spiritual lessons by a donkey. And, and I think that's really appropriate and God does have a sense of humor, right? So let's take somebody who's puffed themselves up. The nations of the world think they're amazing. This guy's a pop star. 
Everybody's heard of him. When he goes out for coffee, there's paparazzi there to take pictures and put it in the magazines because everybody wants to know what Balaam's doing, right? He's a star and a donkey's going to teach him how to live his life. And I think that's great. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. Again, don't take my word for it. God's angry because Balaam disobeyed. And, and, and that's kind of in between the lines in the previous verses, but in verse 22, it's right there. And an angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So now Balaam's not communicating with God. He's actually not able to see God or hear God and God's standing against him, right? So this is the first sin is to ignore God's word. Second sin he makes is that he takes action against God's word. He's not only going astray, he's in defiance. The word angel here is Malachi. It means a messenger of God. Throughout the Old Testament, when angel is used, we have three different uses of the word. In some cases, the messenger of God can be in a human form and actually interacts with us just like other humans do. They're a messenger. A second thing we see angel is a spiritual being of some sort that God's claiming there's a being from another realm that talks to humanity, an angel, a messenger from God. They both do the same thing. And the third use is when we see angels referring in the first person or bringing glory to themselves, most people that are Christians and even Judeo people believe that's an, a, a manifestation of the Messiah prior to Jesus. So we call that a Christophany. This is one of those instances. I'll show you why here in a few verses. So there's three interactions that happen between the donkey and the angel. And Balak reacts to each of the three things. And there's slight differences between them. He, Balaam, is riding on his donkey, trucking along. And his two servants were with him. So he brings his, his entourage. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back to the road. So donkeys can be stubborn beasts to begin with. Well-trained donkeys generally do what they're told. But the donkey is more spiritually tuned in than the great soothsayer Balaam. There's huge irony here, right? So the donkey can see the angel, Balaam can't. The donkey can see the sword in the angel's hand, Balaam can't. The donkey makes the right decision and turns away from this path that they're on. Balaam, of course, doesn't. So here's the guy that everybody looks to, and he's, got, and he's basically he's less than an ass. And I think that's great. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on the side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Balaam, if the path of God is stepping on your toes, move your toes. The answer isn't to get angry at God or to strike the poor donkey that's just doing her job. Verse 26, then the angel of the Lord went further. Notice here, by the way, the angel of the Lord isn't attacking Balaam with the sword. The angel keeps letting Balaam progress. And God works that way in our life too. If we're going the wrong way, God will give us these situations that might even hurt our foot, like give us a little stinger because he's trying to get us on the right path. But God lets people have free will. They get to choose their path. And Balaam's doing it despite these warnings and these checkpoints. Keeps moving forward. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, verse 27, and she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. I think of this as when somebody's just, they haven't heard from God again and again and again and the car breaks down on the side of the road 
and they're reduced to this state of barbarism against the car and they're kicking the tires and screaming and throwing things. Like great comedy movies have these moments where somebody's just, they just erupt at the most ridiculous things. And I picture Balaam like that right now. Like now finally the donkey's gonna lay down on me and he's just angry and he starts beating the donkey. He's completely blind to God and God's promises and what God wants because all he can see is the money at the end of the road. All he can see is the payoff and the honor. So Balaam uses three responses. They're not very creative. He strikes, he strikes, and he strikes, right? Not very original, but there's a progressive thing. You got with Balaam this brutal tactic to push forward regardless of God's will. Um, the third time he uses a staff. We don't know what he uses the first time, which is kind of funny because that staff is another, can be used as a word for wand or diviner's rod. So he uses his magic wand to beat the donkey with. So the magic wand doesn't very magic at all. God's servant, the donkey, tries three different tactics. First, to turn away. Second, to push away. And then the third is just to sit and lay down and say, I'm not moving. I'm not going to budge. This is where I'm at. Here I stand. I'm not going to go anywhere. We too can try all of these things with ungodly people who are riding our backs. Right? We can try to turn away, we can try to push away, and finally we can just sit down and say, we're not going to budge on this. This is where God's telling us to be and what we want to do. Because hopefully we're more tuned in than a donkey. So who's the stubborn ass in this story? Sorry to keep spoiling, but I like that word here because it has impact. Who's the stubborn ass in this story? Is it the actual donkey or is it Balaam? And God has a sense of humor and don't miss the sense of humor here. He's taking this picture and he's making this wonderful, highly renowned person to be the stubborn donkey in a story with a stubborn donkey. God keeps going with the humor because in the next bite we're going to see a miracle. This should have been a hint to Balaam all the way along that he's, he, he knew in his heart he was defying God by going with these people, that he was going against the will of God. He knows in his heart that he didn't have those guys show up in the morning because God didn't want them to show up. Balaam was supposed to listen to that, and he didn't. If God can move mountains, and Balaam can barely move his own donkey, he's, he's not picking up on that spiritually. And I think that's kind of interesting, too. We often will beat the donkey when we try to plow ahead on our own path and not listen to God and what God wants in our life. So I love people because sometimes they'll ask, you know, so, Sean, what's going on with your Bible study? Are you doing this? Are you going to do this? And Amy, we talked about this. I'm just doing whatever the Lord tells us to do. If we run out of room, we'll find a bigger place. But we haven't run out of room. We still have one chair open. So we have plenty of room to have people hear the Word of God. And we'll just keep going because we're just going to do what the Lord has. We're not going to go to resistance points and keep pushing. So the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey. This is a miracle. I also love when non-believers say, I just can't believe a book where donkeys talk. And people walk on water. And that's impossible. And you can, one great way to respond to that is, you are absolutely right. That is totally impossible. And that's why they wrote it down. Because it happened. And when things happen that are actually impossible, you write them down and tell everyone you know because the God of the universe intervened and did something amazing. So you'll have people that do like, well, scientifically, donkeys don't have vocal cords. I'm like, yeah, right. That's why this is a miracle. And the claim of the Bible is that God does miracles. That's the claim. He created the world. That's the first miracle. You just get that right up front, Genesis 1. right? And then he does these other things because it is right. And anyone who knows anything about 
biology or auditory things, donkeys don't talk, nor do they have the tools to talk. So God is somehow or another creating an audible uh, donkey talking for Balaam because Balaam doesn't get it anyways. And she says to Balaam, what have I done to you that you strike me these three times? Again, a great question. Making Balaam answer to his own behavior. That's great. And even if we might be dumb as a donkey, because Peter calls this a dumb donkey, so even Peter knew the donkeys don't talk. He called the donkey dumb. Um, one of, even, even though we might be dumb donkeys, one of the things we can do to people is say, what have I done to you? Name the thing where I have crossed you somehow or another. And the donkey does that. Verse 29, Balaam says to the donkey, because you abused me. Wait, who's abusing who? Right? And I see that a lot. Who's the hateful person in this relationship? Because it isn't me. I'm just your friendly neighborhood donkey. I carry your junk around for you. I'm a servant. And you're calling me a hate monger? You're calling me an abuser of people? You're calling me all these names and all I do is try to help? Who's the raging person kicking at the tires right now and doing damage? Is it the donkey or is it Balaam with his sore foot? I wish there were a sword in my hand for I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to doing this to you? And Balaam said, no. What a clear conscience this amazing donkey has. If donkeys are by personality stubborn creatures, then there's another miracle in this verse. The miracle is, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? The entire lifespan of this donkey with Balaam, this was a good non-stubborn donkey. That's a miracle. And if you've been around barnyard animals or anything like that, donkeys are not like this. But this is a donkey who can say with a clear conscience, despite my flesh, despite who I am or who I was, since you've known me, haven't I always been a good donkey? What a place to be with everyone we know. And I hate to say like we're supposed to learn from donkeys here, but Balaam's supposed to learn from a donkey. Maybe we can too. But shouldn't we have that kind of clear conscience with everybody we know? Ever since you've encountered me, haven't I always been Christ-like? Haven't I always treated you with grace and peace? Because despite the fact that in the flesh donkeys are stubborn animals, this donkey can say, I've never been that animal to you. I've always been something other than what I was born to be with you. And we in Christ should be able to say that. We've always been Christ-like with you. I know I'm a sinner. I know by nature I'm just a donkey. But with you, I've always had a clear conscience. And the donkey's able to say that, and Balaam has to say, he has to open his mouth and finally speak truth and say, no, you've never been that way with me. He has to face this. God can use anything and anyone to speak to his people. That's the miracle too. He doesn't need us to speak the, the glory of God to other people. And we see that in Luke 19.40. Jesus is coming up into Jerusalem and they say, tell these people to stop calling you the Lord. And he says, and he answered unto them and said, if I tell you that, that the, if I say that, then these should hold their peace, then the stones will immediately cry out. If the people don't praise me, I can get these rocks to praise me. God will make this donkey speak truth if there's no one left to speak truth in the room. What an honor then that God chooses to use us to share the good news with people and put packages on doorknobs and to bless people in our homes and to make food for them and to be hospitable, to care for people when they have sore feet. What a blessing that we get to do those things in our life. 
because he could be using stones and donkeys. If he really wanted to, something's going to sing God's praise and his glory. But what a blessing that we get to do that. Just a thought. I know, even the wind agrees. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened, his, opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in hand. And he bowed his head and he fell flat on his face. The second Balaam opened his mouth and spoke truth, no, you've never done that to me. His heart softened a little bit and his eyes opened. Amazing how quick this happens and how merciful God is to instantly open his eyes. And he can see what he needs to see. He responds by bowing his head and he falls flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? And he never did answer the question, did he? Now he's getting the question from an angel, a messenger. Behold, I have come to stand out against you because your way is perverse to me. And that's the first person I'm talking about. This is not an angel that we see in other passages that constantly give glory to God. This is someone that takes that perversion and it's an affront to them. So that's the way in which Jesus talks in the New Testament. And most people that read through the Old Testament and study the Old Testament see that kind of language is that this is actually an incarnation of Christ talking to Balaam in this moment. Because it's not perverse against God, it's perverse against me. And that language kind of points to a Christophany or an appearance of Christ. Verse 33. Well, all of a sudden we have a pretty holy moment, right? We got Jesus talking to Balaam outside of the nation of Israel in the narrative that we've seen already. Which makes you wonder, how did Moses find out about this story in order to put it in the book? Like there had to be some follow-up conversation somewhere, right? To hear this story. Verse 33. The donkey saw me and turned aside for me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely I also would have killed you by now and let her live. It's interesting that there's a contrast here in Balaam's threat to kill the donkey. And the angel points out that thing you were about to kill has actually just saved your life. That thing you hated is the thing that actually showed you the most love. Sometimes we're scared to tell people about Jesus because we're worried what they'll think about us. Because sometimes they get angry. They don't want to be told that they might be in sin and that they need to repent. And the hard part about that is then essentially we back off and we don't say anything because we're too scared to get people upset with us. We're too worried about what they think of us when that happens. And the angel here is saying actually the person who loved you the most was the person who told you the truth. And sometimes then when people get saved, they actually come back to those people and say, thank you so much for being the only person in my life who loved me enough to tell me the truth to point at my sin and tell me I needed to repent. Thank you for being that one person in my life that would just say it. Otherwise, a lot of people are just happy to love people into hell. You know, I'll just let you have a smooth ride and I don't need to bother with you. Um, to stand in somebody's way, to turn them aside or to sit and plop down because you are desperate to not only save their life but maybe obey that angel right in front of you puts a lot of conviction into this story. The word perverse there is yarat. It means to cast something down or interestingly, to push headlong into something and wring it out or precipitate it. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Perverse means to wring something out until something drips. That's what you do when you pervert something. So you can take a nice square washcloth, crinkle it up, which means to distort it and change it, and then you squeeze it until water drips out of it. That's perversion in this use of the word, the Hebrew word. 
that's interesting because when you turn something over enough times, that's kind of Balaam's issue here. He's taken God's word, which was crystal clear at the beginning, and he's perverted it. He's twisted it. He's misshapen it. He's, he's twisted it until he gets any glimpse of his own will out of it, and then he goes forward on that. He's perverted God's word, and that meaning still holds true for us today, too. That's what false prophets do. They may even speak the word of God. They may even claim they're following Jesus, but they're taking the word of God and they're wringing it out with very small samples of it and they're twisting it until they get what they want out of the word of God. It's a really deceptive, harsh place to be. And even people like me can read it and go, Balaam seems like a nice guy until you really start going through this and going, yeah, Balaam was wringing the truth he wanted out of God's word. So Balaam loves these wages he's going to get and he's pushing forward towards those wages despite God's clear direction and a donkey that tries to pull him away. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, They've forsaken the right and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity by a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. Sometimes even the simple can restrain the great evils that people want to drive towards. The simple, the basic, the easy. And in that sense, people say, oh, I don't know if I want to talk about the Lord with other people because I can't get into these big theological arguments. You don't have to. You just need to talk about what God's done in your life. Give your own testimony. You were lost, now you're found. That's all you have to testify to. And those large theological arguments you can leave to people like Gary. right? Just evangelize and bring them to the bring them to people who love having those arguments because God thank goodness blesses us with people that love that stuff and they love those conversations verse 34 Balaam said to the angel of the Lord I've sinned for I did not know you stood in the way against me now therefore if it displeases you I will turn back again at first glance you're like well that sounds like a good prayer right you know that's a trap question but look at first glance doesn't that sound like the right thing to do but he twists it. Listen, I have sinned. So he, he speaks the truth to start out with, but then he doesn't even finish the sentence before he gives an excuse. I've sinned, but I didn't know. I couldn't see. That's not my fault. You stood in the way against me. I just didn't see you. Oops. Ever have somebody bump into you at the grocery store and like, oh, I didn't see you. You're like, partially because you're ramrodding ahead at 20 miles an hour. Watch where you're driving your cart, mister. And you have these kind of things, but it's like, don't blame me for not you not seeing me. Maybe open your eyes. So you have kind of this half confession. He never actually apologizes for the sin. He says, I've sinned, but he never actually says what he did that was sinful. And he knows what he did. But he says, I did not know. What do you mean you did not know? Remember I pointed out how clear the instruction was at the very beginning? Yes, he knew. He knew crystal clear what it was. And then, if it displeases you, it clearly displeases God. He just made a donkey speak to give you that hint. This whole thing displeases God. He shouldn't be going there to do this. So God consistently rebukes, but then he consistently gives people over to their sin. You know, if you really want to go this way. And that's in Psalm 81, it says, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to walk in their own counsel. This is how God reacts to stubborn people. All right. Have your way. Do what you want to do. And that kind of explains what's going to happen in the next few verses. Romans 1.28 says, And even as they did not like to be retained by God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not filling. 
at some point, God just says, do whatever you need to do. I'm not going to stop you because if I stop you, that's not love. And it's not the way that loving people act with one another. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. So is he really repentant here? No, he just keeps going ahead stubbornly and he keeps marching forward towards Balak. As we've seen, God gives the power, kind of gives people over to their sin. Part of why God gives people over to their sin is so that they can see that that's a dead end too. And I love it. We have a friend that'll say, you know, if people want to walk astray from God, encourage them to do it all in. And hopefully they don't die doing it because there's, there's destructive paths that can kill you. But boy, if you're going to go follow this other religion or this other path, do it all in. At least be hot or cold. But don't be lukewarm about it. Do it full on so that you come to the conclusion quicker that that's a dead end and then you can come back to Christ. And so God lets people go their own direction. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundary of the territory. This is really honoring Balaam. Like the king has been waiting months now to see this guy. He's coming. He goes out to meet him. He's going to honor him. He really thinks Balaam's going to change the course of events in history. So just, again, understand how much Balaam has been lifted up in the eyes of Balak. Then Balak says to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? So again, we see here at the end in verse 37, this is all about the money. It's all about the power, at least from Balak's perspective. And Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you. Like we're on good terms. Here I am. Right? So at the end of the day, Balak just kind of speaks what was on his heart in the first place. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So the presentation that he gives is very, very holy. The actions that he knows in private are very, very contrary to God's will. Balak seems to be struggling with compromise or he's kind of covering his losses here because he knows God's not going to work with him on this. So he's just telling Balaam, like, I'm here, but I might not be able to curse these people for you. So maybe he's kind of setting it up to do that. Around the ungodly people, around ungodly people, compromised believers, and I'm kind of treating Balaam as a compromised believer. He does believe in Yahweh, talks to Yahweh, prays to Yahweh, Yahweh talks back to him. So a compromised believer has a few things they got to do around the ungodly. Number one, they got to please the ungodly. Balaam does that right here. Number two, they have to watch what they say around the ungodly. Right? And these are bellwethers for myself too. If I'm acting this way around the ungodly, something's compromised. If I got to watch what I say, if I'm trying to please them all the time. And number three, they minimize God or throw God under the bus. Notice that Balaam's response here has very little to do with God and a lot more to do with Balaam. And then four, they take false stands. I stand on this. This is what's important to me, but it's a false stand because they don't really stand on anything. If you take away the money, Balaam would not be doing this, right? So we see all four of those elements in verse 38. Look, I've come to you. He's trying to please him. Uh, if I have any power at all to say anything, he's covering his losses, throwing, minimizing God. The word that God puts in my mouth, I must speak. He takes a false stand. And he's watching what he says here because he doesn't mention the clear direction from God that he should not curse the Israelites. So he watches what he says. He doesn't really reveal everything that he actually knows God has already said. 
So God's put that in his mouth. Balaam gives a half-truth and doesn't speak the full counsel of God and keeps his mouth shut about the things that he should be saying. And this is convicting for me. I've done this for years, and I'll just confess to you. I spent years of my life watching what I said around the unbelievers because I wanted to not get them upset with me. I've spent years of my life trying to be cautioned about how I talk about things. Staying under the radar was a good thing, especially at UW-Madison. Like I didn't want to be bold and, 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 and flagrant about my faith. And I'm not saying that like it's a good thing. I'm ashamed of that, right? And then at some point you say, okay, I'm done being a false person. I just got to be true to the Lord that I serve. And I'm going to speak what the Lord says in his word. I'm going to do it with boldness. And let the chips fall where they may. If Balak wants to kill him, kill him. If Balak wants to respect that, great. Balak could even repent, but he can't repent unless he's heard the full counsel of God, right? And so that sort of thing has to happen here. So we see a compromised believer. How does this go? Verse 39. So Balaam went to Balak, and they came to Kirath Huzoth. And then Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and the princes who were with him. So Balaam went to Balak. Don't read over that. Who's in charge now? With a compromised Christian, when you're worried about what people think, you just gave them all the power in the relationship. God isn't getting the glory. Balak's getting the glory. So Balaam went with Balak. Now he's not just heading that direction. He's traveling with them. They're buddies going along to curse Israel and do bad things. So Balak's leading. Balak offers things that, that is not an offering to Yahweh, and it's not done by the priests of God. So these are clearly probably offerings. Balak's covering his bases. He's giving offerings to all the gods. And, the, the, uh, and then some went to Balaam. In other words, Balak gets the first stuff, and God gets all the second leftovers. Remember Leviticus? Does God get the leftovers, or does he get the first fruits and the best? So Balak's defying every, making everything unholy and unsacred in this situation. And progressively in the Bible, we know that because Moses is, I think we should be assuming that we've read Leviticus. We know what's holy. And when we read this, we should recognize this is not holy, right? This is not a priest of God doing this. God's not getting the first fruits. God's getting all the leftovers. This is not good. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. We'll wrap up with a few thoughts on this. All the world is doing its best to curse God's people. There's a mighty ruler, there's a mighty soothsayer, they're teaming up to disregard Yahweh and to twist and wring out what he says. There's a son here and a, a, a spiritually gifted donkey <laughs> um, that is totally ignored. We have a word from God. We have a word from this messenger, which could be the son. And then you've got a word or a spirit speaking out of a donkey. You've got a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit all telling Balaam to not do this. Right? And you've got this message being totally ignored. And everything that's happening right now is going to get used by God. So even in all of this disaster of a situation, God's going to use it for his own benefit. So go ahead and go your way. You're just going to glorify me because of the destruction you're going to bring. And that's beautiful. So where is Jesus in all this? If you have eyes to see, I just want to point some of these things out, then see what this looks like. Donkeys get used in other places in the Bible. And when we see the donkey getting used here, it's kind of interesting to see this donkey image coming in the middle of numbers, kind of out of nowhere, right? Here's a donkey that talks. 
The last time we saw donkeys, Genesis 22. You can do this is a great Bible study. I'm just going to give you chapters. You can go back and read this later. Genesis 22. There were actually three people that went up the hill: Abraham, Isaac, and a donkey that we kind of forget about, right? But there was a donkey that went up that hill too. Now that we know God can use donkeys to talk, it gives the donkey kind of a presence in that story. You can go back and read that story and go, ah, there's somebody else involved there. There's a prize that snuck away in a donkey's backpack when Benjamin left Joseph back in Genesis 42. There was a donkey involved in that story that carried this thing that was in this relationship with Joseph. And there's also the prophecy of Issachar in Genesis 49 verse 14 that Issachar will lie down between two burdens. And, donkey, and the image of Issachar is that he's the donkey tribe. And that donkey is going to lie down. And so you see this and you're like, oh, so there's a donkey lying down, Issachar. What does all this mean? There's a donkey that's part of the sacrificial system. And there was this rare thing in Exodus 13 where the donkey could be redeemed. So you sacrificed lambs, oxen, turtle doves. There's a long list of things you can sacrifice. But donkeys get redeemed just like human beings do. All right. I'm elevating donkeys here a little bit. You can see there's some value to donkeys. But we don't destroy donkeys. You pay a price so the firstborn donkeys don't get killed in the normal sacrificial system. Well, that's kind of interesting. And then, if you really want to geek out in donkeys, there's Exodus 20, which I'm embarrassed to bring back up because it has to do with a donkey. And I compare that to Alyssa having things and we shouldn't co covet things. One of the things we shouldn't covet that other people have is their donkeys. Right? You remember this moment, Alyssa? Okay. For those of you who don't remember, it was very embarrassing because I said you shouldn't, for example, if Alyssa has a nice house, which you do now, you shouldn't covet her house and you shouldn't covet this and you shouldn't covet that. And then I pointed out using the three letter term for donkey, I pointed out you shouldn't covet that either. And then I realized what I'd said right after it. Do you remember that now? No, I do. Okay. So Moses even says to the people when they complain, I haven't even taken your, any one of your donkeys. Numbers uh, 16, we saw that. That was one of his responses. I haven't even asked for a donkey from you. And then we see this donkey show up and it has another prominent role. So the donkey's been kind of invisible all the way through the Bible so far. And suddenly the donkey speaks. And you realize, oh, the key places in the Bible where big things are happening, there happens to be a donkey on the scene that we totally don't see, just like Balaam. The donkey was invisible to Balaam. He didn't realize there was something going on there. Oh, the donkey will continue to be part of the narrative. So really quick, in Judges 15, you all know, Samson kicks him butt. And what does he do it with? A donkey's jawbone, right? So the donkey speaks once again. David is first sent up to Saul, and the only thing he brings with him is a donkey. This is kind of, and I'm not saying there's anything to this other than interesting. Kind of interesting. He rides into Jerusalem with no political power, no authority in this world. David, the little shepherd kid, and he's going to go up. The only anoint thing he has is that he's anointed by God and he's riding in on a donkey. You see where I'm going with this? That was David. But then if you flip forward, you see this prophetical mention. And where is Jesus in this chapter? Jesus is, is maybe that angel, maybe a Christophany there. But Jesus... There's an image of Jesus that comes through here. Listen to this from Matthew 21, verse 5. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and before he goes up into Jerusalem, he says this, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, 
and a colt loose with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey then willingly lets a total stranger, Jesus, ride on her. This is a miracle. Donkeys don't willingly let strangers ride on them. But amazingly, the disciples bring this donkey to Jesus and it peacefully lets Jesus ride on top. There's a wall on the side of Jesus when he walks up this path. There's a wall to the side. There's vineyards to his right. And the donkey does not turn away. The donkey does not beat Jesus' foot against the wall. And the donkey does not sit down. It rides right into the city. The same way David did when he was approaching Saul. This is a really interesting image. And we just read right over it. Like there's nothing to it. But there's a miracle going on with these donkeys. Right? So... They go through a narrow gate, just like Issachar, and because the, the keystone gates of Israel would have been defensive gates. They go through this narrow gate, and there's this ruler that's there waiting for them, and that ruler gets together with this false priest, and they decide they're going to strike the Messiah. And this is the story of Jesus. And you see this thing where Balak and Balaam have roles in the story that are not the godly roles. It's the king and the priest conspiring against the people of Israel and seeking to do harm. And they strike the donkey three times. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world, like donkeys, little friendly donkeys. Right? It's chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are mighty. What a beautiful image that God uses a donkey to put to shame this mighty man of Balaam. Right? And this mighty person of the world is just utterly put to shame by a simple, as Peter calls it, a simple dumb donkey. What a beautiful thing that God can use the powerful things of this world to, to be shamed and brought into repentance, hopefully, but at the very least, they're shown for what they are when they have simple, basic Christians living out their simple, basic Christian lives right in front of their face. There's no wisdom that this world has to offer that extends beyond serve your king and serve the Lord God Almighty with all your heart, mind, and soul. God uses that simple thing to defy the powers of this world. How amazing. What a beautiful thing. There's two more chapters on Balak and Balaam, and I was going to try to do all three tonight, but there was just too much, and Steph says I can't go for three hours. That's just too much. Um, but I, I will try to get to the other half of this story, but I just love that. If this, if this one had the donkey image in it, and you're like, ah, oh, this is so cool. And we're going to see that there's other characters that ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it goes much better for them. Dear Lord and King, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, for the way in which you make it so that even if we are thick of understanding you explain this story to us in other places in the Bible and you help give clarity to the motives of Balaam that might not be clear from this chapter. Uh, you help us get clarity around the donkey because you've shown us other donkeys throughout the word of God. Uh, Lord, help us and give us understanding so that we have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, your work and your will in our lives. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that isn't serving you, that hasn't been to need you in their life, or maybe they've backslidden and come back, Lord, help them to return to you because they're being told to and because you're giving them every sign that they need to return to your will and your way. Lord, help us not to add to the word of God. Help us to not take away like Balaam did and leave things out. Uh, help us to give people the full counsel of God in their lives 
and not worry about what they think, not compromise what you've said, and not um, hedge our bets, Lord. Uh, this world has nothing to offer us, but your word has everything to offer us. So we pray for that. Lord, I pray for joy and blessing and an anointing on everyone in this room. Lord, we want to see your hand. Open our eyes to see when you're at work and when you're doing things, Lord. Help us to not be blind and not be so prideful and driven by greed that we can't see you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.